Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And if you want to reach out to me, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email at cagerredux at gmail.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X at gmail.com. All right. Today is January 11th, 2023. And in this episode, I'm going to do the second installment of my analysis of the final report of this transformation committee. But before I get into the details of that report, I just want to make a couple of observations. Today also is the first official day of the NCAA's annual convention. It's being held in San Antonio. And when you go to the NCAA website, they just blast the propaganda about this convention. It is all sunshine, cotton candy, and goosebumps. 3,000 people will attend, people representing member institutions and conferences. The convention will go through to Saturday. So today's Wednesday. I'm guessing people started coming in earlier in the week, and they've been ramping up the coverage and the propaganda on this really for the last two weeks. This year's convention has some significance because uh, Charlie Baker, the new NCAA president, will be there and he'll make a speech. You're also going to hear some discussion about these transformation committee recommendations as set forth in the final report, and it's going to be all rah, rah, rah. But there are a couple of important questions that I don't think you're going to see on the NCAA website. The first is, how much does this convention cost? I mean, this is a massive, massive production. And the NCAA is picking up the tab, but where does that money come from? Nobody's asking that question. And as is true with every expense that runs through the NCAA bureaucratic state, those expenses are paid from the labors and revenues generated by elite Division I men's basketball players. March Madness money is the sole source of the NCAA's revenue, and not a penny of big-time football revenue from Power 5 football revenue sources is used to underwrite any NCAA expenses. Wouldn't it be great if the first person to take the microphone at this convention opened by saying, I just want to thank the elite Division I men's basketball players whose labors underwrite the expenses for everything that you're going to experience this week. Wouldn't that be great? It would also be great if Charlie Baker, as a former basketball player at Harvard, would give a little shout out to the Division I men's basketball players and thank them for funding his uh, multi-million dollar salary. We don't know yet what Baker's being paid. Emmert's been making about $3 million a year on average. And I'm guessing that the baker's making at least that. The second thing that I want to mention is that I was watching the CFP National Championship game Monday night. I stuck with it as, as long as I could. I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but I went to law school at the University of Georgia. I lived in Athens for a while. Love Athens, love UGA. And I was pulling for the dogs and boy, <laughs> they put on quite a show. But that game was over early and the announcers were trying to come up with some material to talk about. And they were going off script, really, from analyzing the game. 
they showed a camera shot into the skybox. You see this occasionally. There was a, you know, a shot into the skybox to see really important people. And the shot was of Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, who came back to Disney quite recently. And they had a shot of Bob up there taking in the action. And as I saw that, I was wondering, what's going through Iger's head? Like, what does he see from his throne at the top of the entertainment industry and the sports entertainment industry? Because Disney owns ESPN. When I looked at this spectacle, the way that this game was staged, it had that feel to it. It's like I'm watching a Disney movie, and then they have this shot of Iger. And I'm just wondering, does Bob Iger give a damn about this game? I'm guessing probably not. He wants to know what the ratings are. He wants to know what the advertising revenues are. He's probably thinking about how much money ESPN's willing to pay for the next iteration of the CFP contract when ESPN's contract runs out. But I think he's looking at this as a business. And there was some discussion earlier this year about Disney maybe selling off ESPN to try to generate some capital in an effort to try to reduce some of Disney's debt. But my guess is that Iger is looking at this the way that most in-system economic beneficiaries of the business model look at it. And this is a business. The contrast between the spectacle of the game that just draws us in, we buy the ticket, we take the ride, we go into the amusement park, and we just suspend reality and logic while we're in there. That's exactly where the Disney executives want the consumers. But then that camera pan over to Iger, he had a businessman's look on his face. He wasn't laughing and yucking it up and He's surveying his fiefdom and seeing what value Disney can extract out of this product. And I thought of an intro that emphasized the gap between fantasy and reality would be a perfect setup for what's in this final report that the Transformation Committee put out on January 3rd. So what I want to do is return to the thing I started with really in the last episode, and that is that this whole transformation committee, Kabuki Theater, and this constitutional makeover was really Power 5 Autonomy 2.0. And I talked about that the movement in 2013-2014 in this power grab by the Power 5 where they created a separate classification just for the Power 5. This was a Power 5-only separation. And they had the authority under the autonomy classification with uh, certain categories of legislative items and certain benefits where they could legislate on their own without having to go through the rest of the NCAA. That was still subject to the overall compensation limit caps on pay-for-play and all that stuff. But they had some flexibility to act on their own. And I talked about the reasons for that, and I've talked about that in prior episodes. I'm not going to go through it again. But it's my belief that what has happened with this transformation committee, this constitution committee, was nothing more than the logical endpoint of the autonomy movement. So what I'm going to do here structurally is talk a little bit about the autonomy legislation itself that was passed in August of 2014. And the purpose of it and the broad categories of legislative areas that Power 5 schools could operate in under autonomy. Then I'm going to point out one feature of autonomy from 2014 
that's really important in how this transformation committee pulled the autonomy template from 2013-14 and tried to overlay it with these new recommendations that just came out in the final report. And then I want to use as a specific compare and contrast template a letter from 2020. I talked about it in the last episode. It was drafted on May 23rd, 2020 from all five Power Five conference commissioners to both chambers of Congress. And it was in that letter that the Power Five made their case to Congress for protective federal legislation that would essentially end the athletes' rights movement. And in that letter, they included a paragraph on all of the amazing benefits that athletes had in 2020, most of which were the product of autonomy. And when I sit that side by side with this list of quote unquote benefits that's contained in the Transformation Committee's final report, you can see just how tightly aligned those two lists are. And that supports my theory that what's happened in uh, 2021 and 2022 is really nothing more than this final endpoint of autonomy. So let me start with the actual autonomy legislation itself. And it is contained in bylaw 9.2.2.1.2. And it's titled Areas of Autonomy. Then it gives a list of the specific areas where uh, Power 5 autonomy applies. I just want to say this as I get into this legislation, that Greg Sankey, as I explained in the last episode, was credited with being the brains behind this autonomy legislation and this autonomy movement in 2013-2014. He was the associate conference commissioner of the SEC. Michael Slive was the commissioner back then, and then Sankey replaced him. But this was Greg Sankey's baby, and I think that it's important to understand that because he was instinctively drawn to this way of thinking about athlete benefits through the Power Five lens. And this isn't just a Power Five legislative campaign. It is a Power Five football legislative campaign. And everything that runs through Greg Sankey is running through a football-centric lens. The Power Five exists because of big-time powerful football and the aggregation of football power through conference realignment so that these conferences could put together the best packages and the best products within their conference to go out and sell those products to broadcast media outlets like ESPN. And it was a football show. All of those decisions were built around the acquisition of football market share and football appeal, consumer appeal. So when Sankey comes in to this transformation committee, that's how he sees the world. And it's, I think it's really important to understand that and not underestimate the element of human nature that's operating here because Greg Sankey is running this show. He owns this transformation committee work product. And he tried, I think, in some disingenuous ways to distance himself from that in the way that he presented the final report and that ridiculous press conference that they put up on the website on January 3rd. But this is Greg Sankey's baby. So let me just go through how this legislation structured what it says. So areas of autonomy. This is the opening paragraph. It says the Atlantic Coast Conference, the Big Ten Conference, Big 12 Conference, Pac-12 Conference, and SEC Conference and their member institutions are granted autonomy in the following areas to permit the use of resources to advance the legitimate educational or athletics-related needs 
of student-athletes and for legislative changes that will otherwise enhance student-athlete well-being. And I guess I should also say that I've talked quite a bit about this autonomy movement in my podcast. And in the context of this transformation committee and this constitutional makeover, I did an episode devoted exclusively to the similarities between the autonomy movement in 2013 and 2014 and what is happening right now and what was happening in late 2021 and early 2022 with the adoption of the new constitution and the work of this transformation committee. And if you want to check that out, I think you might enjoy it if you're interested in what this transformation committee has done. It's episode 97. It was done on February 13th, 2022. It's titled The New NCAA Power 5 Autonomy 2.0. And I really go deep in the weeds in the original autonomy movement. And I use some documents that were produced in the O'Bannon litigation that really provide insight into how the Power 5 were thinking about this autonomy movement and about how they viewed their basic relationship to the NCAA and the rest of the stakeholders. And they view themselves as special. The rules don't apply to them, so they want to make their own rules. That's the way they see the world. So let me just go down these specific categories of autonomy. And you're going to hear most of these when I talk about the recommendations that are contained in the Transformation Committee's final report. Number one, athletics personnel. And like so much NCAA legislation, the heading sometimes is inconsistent with what the actual purpose is here. Bottom line for this athletics personnel, it gave the Power Five the authority to beef up their staffs, their football staffs, and gain a competitive advantage relative to the rest of the NCAA, and more particularly the group of five. The second category, insurance and career transition. You're going to see that on this transformation committee list. I'm going to talk about it quite a bit. So they could provide additional insurance products. They also could provide some career counseling. And then the third thing, promotional activities unrelated to athletics participation. So basically, that's another form of career counseling or other pursuits that are unrelated to athletic ability and participation. Number four, Recruiting restrictions. We've got a little Orwell working here. That's, it should be titled Recruiting Expansions, but it, it gave some flexibility on, on, on recruiting issues. Number five, pre-enrollment expenses and support. And those are really recruiting enhancements for high school athletes and their transition into college. Let's see. Number six, financial Aid, legislation related to a student athlete's individual limit on athletically related financial aid and the terms and conditions. That was the full cost of attendance provision, really, I think. And the full cost of attendance scholarship was, according to the Power Five, the product of their magnanimity. And they wanted to show how generous they were as the federal judiciary had its boot on their throat in the O'Bannon case. Because remember, in O'Bannon, the full cost of attendance scholarship was a remedy that the district court gave for the NCAA's anti-competitive restrictions on name, image, and likeness compensation. Then the Power Five adopted that as their own, and they claimed that this was a huge step forward for athletes. The next category, awards, benefits, and expenses. So that gave the Power Five the ability to offer some little things here and there to make it look like the athletes were getting a little bit more than they got before. The next category, academic support. Of course, that's existed for a long time. 
but it allowed these Power Five schools to put together academic support programs. Those had a dual purpose. One was to help these athletes that were underprepared for college academically, but it also was a recruiting tool when they could show the recruits' parents that they were serious about academics. The next category, health and wellness. And it says legislation related to the health and wellness of student athletes, including insurance and other items to permit appropriate and sufficient care. Next, meals and nutrition. Legislation related to meals and nutritional demands for student athletes. And then last, time demands. So all of these things were in place in 2014. And you're going to see in the recommendations of this transformation committee, that this was the template for everything that's contained in that final report, everything. And from this broad list, you had very specific benefits that are referenced in that May 23rd, 2020 letter. So one of the features of the autonomy movement in 2013-14 was that the Power Five had the authority to adopt this legislation, but once legislation was adopted, any other Division I school could adopt that legislation. And some group of five schools adopted some of the Power Five's benefits and legislation prerogatives, but not that many because it's so expensive. And I said back when I was analyzing Autonomy 1.0 that one of the hidden benefits of the Power Five aggregating their power, separating their interests, getting this exclusive legislative prerogative to add, quote unquote, additional benefits for student athletes was that they were offering benefits that were those tips that I talked about in the last episode that Taylor Branch said. These were like tips that a waiter would get. Nothing that was going to break the bank, nothing that was going to challenge the NCAA's compensation limits, but enough to gain an insurmountable advantage in the talent acquisition market because the schools beneath the Power Five simply didn't have the resources to provide those benefits, like a guaranteed four-year scholarship, like the full cost of attendance, like some of the additional staffing flexibility that came with autonomy, particularly with football. And that's where you see these massive staffs and this ridiculous money being paid. But there is no way that schools beneath the FBS division, that's the Power Five and the Group of Five, were going to be able to jump into this benefits game in a meaningful way. They simply couldn't afford to do it. And they haven't done it. And they're not going to do it. And so one of the features of this new rollout of these benefits through this Transformation Committee final report is that they use this tactic where they basically take the Autonomy 1.0 template from 2013-2014, and then they say that they are going to require the, all of Division One to adopt some of these benefits. They, they only once, I think, speak specifically in terms of the old autonomy legislation, but this entire way of thinking about these new benefits for athletes in 2022 and 2023 comes from that template. And that's so important to understand. And I'm going to go through uh, benefit by benefit, line item by line item of the new things, the quote unquote new things that are in this final report to show just how illusory they are. But I want to start with this Power 5 letter to Congress from May 23rd, 2020. And I talked about it in the last episode. I've talked about it in previous episodes as well. And the Power 5 were making their case to Congress. This was sent to both chambers, but I think this was really directed to the Senate. And at the time, the Republicans controlled the United States Senate and the NCAA and the Power 5's lobbying campaign for protective federal legislation began in the Senate, not the House, because in 2020, 
the House was controlled by the Democrats. So they write this letter, and remember, this is in the heat of COVID. So at the very beginning of this letter, they're trying to take some of the steam out of that. And they say, we are grateful for your leadership and diligence in the current crisis facing our nation. We realize that as the country moves through the peak of the pandemic, Congress will begin to reintegrate other business into its calendar. And the Power Five wanted the United States Senate to focus immediately on the Power Five's campaign to end the athletes' rights movement. And they explicitly ask for the three death provisions. They want the preemption of state laws that would take states completely out of the regulatory field and put the nil market really in, in the federal government's hands. Second, they wanted a provision that athletes cannot be employees to kill any possibility that athletes could have a seat at the table through collective bargaining under the National Labor Relations Act. And then they wanted, they called it a safe harbor. Some of the language that these people used in 2020, we just need a little safe harbor from federal antitrust liability so we can't be sued. We just want to snuggle into this safe little harbor. It sounds so innocuous. But in this letter, they use a tactic that they use and that the NCAA has used for years and years. And that is to provide a list of all of the amazing things that the system, the NCAA system, the Power Five system provides these athletes. And I just want to run through this list and we'll have that sitting side by side with the benefits that are listed in this final report of the Transformation Committee. And they say in this letter, our institutions exist to educate and serve their students. Our scholarship student athletes receive not only an education, but also world-class coaching and mentoring, nutritional counseling, healthcare and mental wellness services, unlimited meals and snacks, lodging, career counseling, laptops, funding to meet student-athletes' full cost of attendance, Pell Grants, and personal relationships that last a lifetime. Now remember, this is 2020, two and a half years ago. And when we go through the list of benefits that the NCAA and the Transformation Committee claim that they are offering as new benefits, you'll see that almost all of them align almost perfectly with this list that I just read you from 2020. And of course, the letters signed by all five conference commissioners at the time. You had John Swafford at the ACC. Kevin Warren had just joined the Big Ten. You had Bob Bowlesby, who was then the Big 12 conference commissioner. You had Larry Scott, who was then with the Pac-12. And of course, the autonomy legislation guru, Greg Sankey, commissioner of the SEC. So now I want to go to the final report of the Transformation Committee and all of these benefits that were the centerpiece of this rollout of the final report. And again, I'll just note, as I did in the last episode, that that point of emphasis was fundamentally inconsistent with the actual work of this committee as expressed in the minutes of these meetings that started in January of 2022 and went through early December of 2022. These athlete benefit and support items really fall into two categories. There were a small set of recommendations and quote-unquote benefits that were passed by the Division One or blessed by the Division One Board of Directors back in August. And remember when the Transformation Committee was announced in October of 2021. They had a projected timeline for recommendations and implementation of August of 2022. And as they were coming up on that deadline, they needed to come up with something, I think, 
for that August deadline to make it look like they were going through the motions of trying to look at how they could improve the student-athlete experience. But these are, are very minimal. And then you had this second set of new benefits that were included in this final report. Some of those didn't receive any discussion in the minutes of the committee's actual work. They were just tossed into this final report. And to try to emphasize these new benefits, the Transformation Committee and probably Bully Pulpit Interactive, their public relations spin doctor company, came up with a new name for these benefits. And it is now called the New Holistic Model for Student athletes. And that is a label. It's a new tagline. Maybe the NCAA will trademark this thing. They trademark everything that they get, can get their hands on. But I challenge anyone on that transformation committee to go back through the minutes of the transformation committee over a year of weekly meetings and show me where those words appear at any point in any discussion of the committee's work. I don't think you can do it. I've been through these minutes. I haven't found it. But this is a brand new, made up out of whole cloth marketing campaign to try to convince people that this committee has actually done something. So when the report talks about these benefits, it draws this distinction. And the first category they call transformative changes made to date. And those were the changes that were approved by the board of directors, Division One board of directors in August of 2022. And then they have a second category that is called the new holistic model for student athletes. So let's start with these benefits that were approved in August. As we go through these, I want to have two questions in mind. One, are they really new? Two, do they even rise to the level of tips that a waiter might get? So the first category is under a heading called health and safety, and they say this, Division I schools are now permitted to purchase insurance for student-athletes. This includes student-athletes who may face severe or critical injuries, get sick, lose their ability to play, and more. That is the first item of business, and this is nothing new. In fact, it is so old that the Power Five in that May 2020 letter to Congress, they didn't even include that in the laundry list of benefits because it's been around so long, and it applies to so few athletes. So. I just want to stop right here and talk about the history of those insurance products. And that dates back really to 1990. And I have documents from the NCAA website, old documents, that talk about the history of that benefit. And I'll note that this benefit is permissive. Schools aren't required to offer this. And when I explain what it is, you'll understand why. But there had been a concern for a long time, and again, this goes back 30 plus years, that the truly high value athletes in football and men's basketball were at risk of a career-threatening or ending injury, and that their future earnings as professional players could be impacted if they didn't have access to insurance products that protected against future loss or loss of value. That's a very niche market, and there are only a handful of athletes in the college sports pool who could even qualify for those benefits because the underwriting criteria are so strict and the premiums are almost cost prohibitive. But starting in 1990, football and men's basketball players could get a loan. It couldn't be paid for by the institutions. They could get a loan to cover these really sophisticated, high-end insurance products. 
Then in 1991, that program was expanded to include baseball. And it's under the name of this program is called the Exceptional Student Athlete Disability Insurance Program, emphasis on exceptional. So we have football, basketball, then we bring in baseball in uh, 1993, bring in ice hockey. In 1998, we bring in women's basketball. Those are the five sports that the NCAA has always treated separately because those are the five sports that can generate some revenue and that have the most reliable pipeline from college into professional sports. So they're all protected. And uh, they put together this program that had very strict eligibility requirements. They had to demonstrate that they had professional potential to be selected in the first two rounds of the professional drafts for those various sports. Then you had to apply. It could only be funded through loans that the athletes would have to pay back once certain conditions were made. So if you get a loan for an insurance product and then signed with a professional team, you had to pay back that loan. So this wasn't any great benefit. This was a loan. Then they placed a cap on the payout, the amount of money that you could get. And then they had a very strict definition of disability. You had to go through this rigorous underwriting and qualification process. That was reserved for the very elite athletes. So when you're thinking about athletes who could easily get this coverage, you're talking about Zion Williamson or Trevor Lawrence, or maybe some non-revenue athletes. Because later in this program, this exceptional athlete disability insurance program, it was opened to Olympic sport athletes, but they had to make the case that they had this market potential as a professional. I think schools were looking for ways to try to sell to these high-value athletes that they were going to protect them when they were at school. So these schools, mostly the Power Five schools in football, men's basketball, were, were looking for ways to try to pay for these benefits. And so we, there was a movement away from the loan program, and schools were tapping into the Student Assistance Fund. It's one of these made-up funds that comes from the NCAA through March Madness distributions, grant dis distributions from March Madness revenue that comes back to the schools. Some schools were using that money to buy this insurance for the small number of, of athletes that qualify. So what the NCAA did with this transformation committee is to say, oh, well, schools can now just pay for that outright without having to ask for a waiver. Because when the NCAA on their website on August, I think it was 3rd or 4th when they announced these new benefits, they said that all these benefits were benefits that could have been obtained through some kind of an NCAA waiver, an exception to existing NCAA rules. But now they don't have to go through the waiver process. And that's basically what they did with this insurance product. But I just want to emphasize that in talking about the potential or hypothetical applicability of that benefit to all Division I athletes, that is a mirage because only a very small handful of athletes are going to qualify. And almost all of them are going to be living in the Power Five space. And the pressure to allow more flexibility and whether the schools can fund these premiums runs through Power 5 interest because they're using it as a recruiting tool. It's now part of the recruiting package and they want to be able to tell the Zion Williamsons of the world that they can easily get a product in place. He doesn't have to pay for it. He doesn't have to take out a loan and it's just another recruiting tool. Then the next bullet point on benefits that were made available in August is titled Financial Support and Expenses. For these, honestly, this doesn't even rise to the level of a tip. This is like 
some guy comes in and spends uh, $500 on a dinner, and then he leaves $1 in pennies on the table. So <laughs> there were three pieces under this financial support and expenses. One, benefits incidental to athletes' academic success, but they don't provide any specificity. That's another global observation I want to make. When they talk about these benefits, it's very vague. We don't get the fine print. And there's plenty of information from which they could have provided the fine print. They could have gone back and discussed the history of this loss of value insurance and how what's being offered now is different. They don't want to do that because it highlights the fact that this is either nothing new or nothing really better than what the athletes had before. And when they're talking about benefits that are incidental to academic success, are they talking about the Austin benefits? We don't know. If they are, then that's a, a mirage as well, because those benefits only exist because a group of athletes filed a class action suit to get them, and the NCAA fought every step of the way. But the specific expenses that are now permissible include parking, cap and gown, and transportation to campus. Boy, that's some, that's some big benefits right there. Your cap and gown, we're tossing that in for you. All right, number two, provide student-athletes with travel expenses related to institutional athletics competition, regardless of whether the student-athlete is eligible to compete. It's that last part that's important because they already provide travel expenses, all travel expenses, and athletes are allowed to get a per diem. It's a, it's a cash payment. I guess it's still a cash payment. We got those when I played basketball at Duke in the early 80s, and the trainer would give us our cash for each trip. It wasn't very much, but it, it allowed athletes to, you know, to pick up some food or whatever, some incidentals on the road. But saying that regardless of whether the student athlete is eligible to compete might technically be an extension of that pre-existing practice. But again, we don't know. The third bullet point under financial support and expenses, provide expenses for student athletes to participate in elite level training tryouts and competition, including regional, national, and world championships and other events used for consideration for selection to a national team. I'm not sure what the practice had been on that. And if that's new, I guess that's a, a decent little thing for a very small handful of athletes who have a realistic chance of being selected to a national team. The other thing about that, it also supports this NCAA's propagandized use of the college sports pipeline as an Olympic development tool. And they've been riding that propaganda because that's one of the ways that they can try to make the case for their relevance as an institution. And the next bullet point, Complementary admissions. Division schools are now permitted to provide complementary admissions for student-athletes, friends, and families with fewer restrictions. It's that with fewer restrictions that's so important. They already get complementary admissions. I think it's maybe four tickets per athlete per home game, and I think you get two on the road. That was true for me in the 80s. My understanding is that that hadn't really changed. So maybe you can get a couple of more complementary tickets and Maybe some of the restrictions on who can get those tickets is going to be relaxed a little bit. That is nothing. It is nothing. And then if the athlete needs tickets beyond what the NCAA permits, they can purchase it at face value. You know, like That's an additional benefit. They don't have to go out into the scalping market or go onto one of these scam ticket sites and pay four times face value for a ticket that isn't worth that. This is embarrassing, really. Then this fourth bullet point, entertainment, housing, and meals. You already provide housing and meals. And this entertainment thing, again, I don't know what the hell that means. So under that heading, you have provide reasonable entertainment to student athletes at any time. Provide student athletes meals and snacks at any time. That was a product of autonomy. And that was one of the things they held up 
And it was in that list from that May 2020 letter to Congress. Let's see, use discretion in providing vacation expenses. What the hell does that even mean, use discretion? Again, they refuse to explain these bullet points because an explanation would expose them as things that either aren't worth a damn or already exist. The fourth bullet point, allow student athletes to rent dormitory space for the summer. You can't give them the dormitory space, but they can rent that space. Wow, that's a heck of a benefit right there. An empty dorm room in an empty dorm for the summer. Wow. Let's see. The fifth bullet point, preseason practice expenses for specific circumstances like international travel. Again, not clear what that means, but the NCAA allows teams to travel internationally every five years, I think, and the shoe companies pay for that. So I don't know if it's tied to that. But again, we don't know because they don't explain, but that's not a big deal. And, and that's going to be a very infrequent occurrence, preseason international travel. So now let's turn to the second category of benefits that just appeared out of whole cloth under a, a newly invented label called the New Holistic Model for Student-Athletes. New, emphasis on new. We'll keep that in mind as we go through here because a lot of this stuff is not new. Let me just read the intro to this. It says, in the fall of 2022, the Transformation Committee deliberated on a new model with suggested recommendations to usher in added support for the 21st century student-athlete. I just want to stop right there. That 21st century student-athlete, that's the same garbage that we got in 2019 with the name, image, and likeness rollout and the NCAA working group on, you know, we're going to modernize college sports. The NCAA has been modernizing college sports for 70 years, and we're still stuck in the 1950s for all intents and purposes. They go on to say, the Transformation Committee recommends that the Division I Board of Directors endorse the key commitments identified below to enhance the student-athlete experience and that it direct legislation to be drafted consistent with these co commitments and be informed by the work of the Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement. That is so important. Informed by the work of the Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement. What does that mean? That means we're not going to do a damn thing on athlete benefits on this list unless we get protective federal legislation. And the Transformation Committee is just slippery as hell on that single point. That is so important. I'm going to explain in more detail here after I go through these benefits how it's unlikely that any of these things come into existence as requirements. They say the new holistic model, it's now a term of art. Just in two paragraphs in one heading, we go from something that didn't exist until this document came out to it being just a term of art. All right. The, they say the new holistic model would go above and beyond current standards and do the following. And they have a list of bullet points here. And I'm going to go through them and then talk about them categorically. All right. First, require Division I schools to provide medical coverage. Require Division I schools all Division I schools. The use of the word require is misleading. When we look at the escape hatches that the Transformation Committee and the Division I Board of Directors and the NCAA have to not provide these at all, but they talk about medical coverage for athletically related injuries for a minimum of two years following graduation or completion of athletics experience. This would also include assistance for out-of-pocket medical expenses during the athletes playing career. That is a product of autonomy. And I think almost every power five school 
has a program like this, and it's only for two years, and it has to be athletically related. The uh, institutions have some discretion here on whether they can provide it because they have to draw some conclusions about the cause of the injury. And the athletes under these provisions that have been in place with the Power Five, I've read a few of them, they have to get their medical care at the institution. They can't get it somewhere else. Is that a good thing? Yeah, it's good, but it doesn't even come close to what the athletes need for long-term care and, and the consequences of injuries over the course of their adulthood. But that was an autonomy issue, nothing new. Bullet point two, require all schools to provide current scholarship protections that are required of autonomy schools, four-year aid agreements. And that's the only place that they mention autonomy. But that is evidence of what I was talking about at the beginning of that last episode about this being autonomy 2.0. And then they're taking some of these things that really only apply to the Power Five schools because they can afford them. And they're trying to impose them downstream to Division One schools. But that's an illusion because there's no way that they're ever going to impose that requirement or enforce that requirement, as I'm going to explain here in a little bit. Then the next bullet point, require all schools to offer degree completion funds within 10 years of separation to any student athlete who is on full scholarship. Now, that wasn't listed in the uh, 2020 letter as a benefit, but as, as a practical matter, a lot of schools offer their own degree completion programs. But I just want to point out real quick that beginning in 1989, the NCAA had a Division I degree completion award program. So an athlete who didn't complete his or her degree could essentially apply for a grant, an award from the NCAA. And as the name of that benefit suggests, it was discretionary. So starting in 1989, an athlete could apply. You filled out an application and you had to meet certain eligibility requirements to get this discretionary degree completion award. And then in 2018, in connection with the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball, which pointed out the absence of enforceable degree completion requirements as a huge gap in the NCAA's benefit packages, particularly since it spends so much time propagandizing the value of that college degree and a high percentage of men's and women's basketball players do not graduate. They recommended a degree completion program and the uh, NCAA quietly threw something together, but it applied only to men's and women's basketball players. The Commission on College Basketball report didn't explicitly limit it that way, but that's what the NCAA did. And they pitched it as a pilot program. But what this 1989 award program did and then what the Commission on College Basketball recommendations did and how the NCAA adopted them is really interesting. They have some important things in common. And when you read the eligibility criteria, this thing reads like an insurance policy that's more exclusion than coverage. And I'm reading here from an FAQ document that the NCAA put out in June of 2019 when they adopted this recommendation, put together this pilot program for men's and women's basketball players. And they had a question about eligibility. And they say a student athlete must satisfy the following requirements in order to be eligible for a degree completion program. One, must have completed two years of academic work at the institution. Two, must have left the institution in good academic standing and meeting all progress towards degree benchmarks. Three, must have been on athletics aid. Four, must exhaust other available funding options, i.e. National Basketball Association tuition 
reimbursement. Five, fewer than 10 years have elapsed since the student-athlete departed the institution. Six, has not attended another school full-time since his or her departure. And seven, student-athlete is subject to institutional admissions and financial aid policies. Those restrictions are substantial. And when you apply those, the number of people who could realistically be eligible for this benefit is very, very small. And like a bad insurance policy, you have these limitations, like a time frame, and you have to have completed two years, these objective criteria. But you also have some discretionary criteria that I think are a real problem here and must have left the institution in good academic standing. That's a discretionary call. Then this last one, student-athlete subject to institutional admission and financial aid policies, that is the ultimate discretionary criteria, and it gives the institutions the authority to overlook all the other criteria. Even if you meet all the other criteria, if an institution says, well, you know, you just don't pass muster under our current admissions policies. And remember, too, that a lot of these athletes got essentially a bump up in the admissions process when they were recruited athletes. When they're coming back for a degree completion program, they're not coming back as recruited athletes. If they are subject to the same admission standards as quote-unquote regular students, the university could quite easily say, sorry, you you don't pass muster here. So this is an illusion. And what we don't know and what we should know is under these existing programs and policies, how many athletes actually benefit from the degree completion programs? They don't want to talk about that. This is truly a meaningful additional benefit. How does it make the, the athlete better off than they were before? And we just don't know. And then one last note on this degree completion program benefit and what impact it would have as a practical matter on the pool of athletes in Division One, And that is that when you look at the NCAA's propaganda on their graduation rates, they claim that almost everyone's graduating. You know, every year they pump out this propaganda on graduation rates and they always go up and up and up. So there's not much room left to get to 100%. So If those graduation rates are accurate under these made-up measurements like the GSR, then there can only be a very small pool of athletes to which this degree completion program could apply. And then the last bullet point here, the substantive bullet point, is that they have created an updated Division I governance structure that won't include increased participation by student athletes at the campus conference at national levels. I think I'm going to hold off commenting on that. That's an illusion as well, because all this stuff runs through the voices that are tightly controlled or hand-selected. I talked about that in the last episode with the use of Kendall Spencer as the student athlete voice and the spokesperson. And he's the only representative that's designated as a student athlete representative on this 21-member transformation committee. Then you have this SAC committee, which the NCAA has on a very short leash. But that athlete voice issue is really important. I'll be talking about that in other contexts, but I I don't see much meaningful progress on that as well. Then we get into another category of quote-unquote benefits that aren't worth the paper that they're drafted on because they refer to some of these existing benefits like track and report schools commitment related to mental health services and resources directly provided to student-athletes. They talk about health and mental health And again, going back to that May 2020 document, that's the same benefit they were championing to Congress two and a half years ago. It's nothing new. And they try to dress it up in a different outfit, 
but it's the same thing. But all of these things I'm going to talk about and zip through right here aren't actual substantive requirements. These are attestations where schools have to say for these things that already exist, that they are meeting their commitment to those benefits. And the way they couch that is really comical. They say these schools are required to attest. You're you're required to consider. But this isn't an enforceable requirement. The other thing about all these benefits is that unless and until they're put into enforceable legislation, enforceable, emphasis on enforceable, they're not worth the paper they're written on. They can be put into some form of NCAA literature as a commitment. And that's how they were characterized. But how are they enforced? And how do the athletes go about holding these institutions accountable? They don't say. So these are empty requirements, but they say that the schools have to track and report on schools' commitments related to mental health. Then they are required to attest that they provide academic support, which already exists. We know that. Then they're required to attest that they provide career counseling. Then they are required to attest that they follow concussion management protocols consistent with the NCAA concussion safety protocol checklist. But those aren't requirements. That protocol is just that, a protocol. They have guidelines. They are not enforceable rules. And then the schools are required to conduct a post-incident review of circumstances surrounding an athletically related catastrophic injury or death. Well, of course, the general university policies would require that. So that's the universe of these new benefits under the new holistic student-athlete benefit model. So in the final analysis, all you have with these new benefits that they are championing from the very beginning of this document, and they wrap themselves up in them in this ridiculous press conference, you have things that already exist in one form or another, and you have some marginal alleged enhancements of those pre-existing benefits. And then you have the extension of those benefits in a couple of cases from the power five under the autonomy prerogatives to all of division one. And so now what I want to do is talk about how misleading the transformation committee was in portraying those benefits as done deals, because there are two crucial limitations that the division one board of directors and the NCAA have placed on these benefits. And, And the first one is how they're going to be paid for. And I'll just use it as an example, a requirement that comes from autonomy that just applied to the Power Five and now is being applied as a requirement to all Division I schools. And that is the four-year scholarship for schools that offer scholarships. You know, there are a lot of Division I schools that don't offer scholarships at all. So that requirement has no impact really. But when you get down into the institutions that feel like this is going to be a financial burden on them, like HBCUs, for example. The NCAA and the board of directors and the transformation committee have an escape hatch. On the financial burden, what the transformation committee suggested is that to help underwrite the cost of any new additional benefits like this, we're going to just recalculate the March Madness distributions so that some more money can come to schools that are struggling to pay for these new requirements. And remember, those distributions are fixed and promised. And in the last episode, I mentioned that that applied to you know the Division II and Division Three allocations. I don't think that what they're talking about here would directly apply to those allocations. They're locked in at the constitutional level, but they could be implicated. But in order to change these different funds and the allocation of money at, to the schools from March Madness, 
the entire association has to agree to that. So you have that built-in firewall to putting together these new benefits because the association may not approve it. And who knows what's going to happen, but there, there would be a, a lot of bureaucratic hurdles in place before anything like this comes into existence. But the more important limitation, and I think the one that the Division One Board of Directors is going to land on, is the brick wall that is the NCAA Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and Action. And after this final report discusses all of these great benefits, it says this, the very last paragraph of the benefits section. Importantly, the NCAA Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and Action will work with the members of Congress to determine whether there is mutual agreement on a federal approach to some of the challenges in college sports. Now, that is cryptic to the point of obscurity. But what they're saying reinforces what, what I'm about to read to you here that comes from the addendum. There is an addendum to this report that is identified at the very beginning. And it says, for a full list of recommended actions, please see the addendum at the end of this document. And the way that the addendum is structured, it has four categories, and it's presented in chart form. So on the top left, you have category. What, what type of issue is presented from the Transformation Committee's recommendations? Then you have a second column that says review area, and then a third column that says the Transformation Committee's recommendations, and then a fourth that says timeline. And the first item in this addendum relates to these student-athlete benefits. So for category, they have student athlete benefits for the review area. They have the holistic student athlete benefits model, and they list all the things I just read to you. Then the third column on the Transformation Committee's recommendations, and then the fourth column, they talk about the timeline for these benefits. And I, I want to go to these recommendations and the timeline. The timeline is really important here because they're suggesting in this document and in the rollout and in the press releases and the speeches at that press conference that these benefits are a done deal. But that coy paragraph that I read you about this subcommittee on congressional action tries to plant the seed that there may be some caveat to, to the existence of these benefits. But that becomes more apparent when you look at this addendum. So under the Transformation Committee recommendations, it says legislation will be acted on either as it appears in the commitments or modified as needed by the work of the Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement. So all of these athlete benefits are running through the lens of the NCAA's lobbying campaign and their monomaniacal quest to get absolute protections and immunities from Congress that would allow them to offer none of these benefits. And then on the timeline, here is what they say. Because when you look at the timeline for some of the other items in this report, they give a specific end date. For example, on decision-making structures and governance, they say additions, modifications, and legislative actions to be finalized by June of 2023. But with these athlete benefits, here is how they describe the timeline. It says, dependent upon work of the Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement, which means there is no timeline. What they're saying is that any benefit described in this document, in this final report, is contingent upon the NCAA's work through this 
Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and Action, which is a subcommittee devoted to getting everything from Congress that, that the Power Five has wanted since 2019. And those are the three death provisions that would end the athletes' rights movement. So there is no timeline. That just makes a mockery of every word that's written in the body of this final report. Every word. And that misdirection is restated in a very clever way by Greg Sankey at this absurd press conference where he delivered a scripted speech. And let me just read a little bit of this and just to reinforce how disingenuous the stakeholders are when they're talking about what they're willing to do for the athletes. So Sankey says, Beyond what is contained in the report, you will note at the end, beginning on page 21, are key discussions related to Division I that need to be addressed. Namely, we need a consistent national framework for name, image, and likeness activity. But the big picture model to address the needs of a number of our student athletes in our highest visibility sports, especially in football and men's basketball, provide urgent priorities and ones we are ready and willing to be part of creating a workable solution. Our Transformation Committee received a significant amount of guidance on these topics, and the reality is the NCAA lacks the legal authority to address some of these elements at present. As part of the reason why the transformation of the NCAA does not stop with this report, it shifts to a new phase. The unfinished work of the Transformation Committee will live on inside the NCAA's new subcommittee on congressional engagement and action. And then Sankey goes on to say, the goal of the subcommittee on congressional engagement is to educate and motivate Congress to work with us to create a clear, fair, and stable legal framework through which these important issues can be adequately addressed. And I, I talked about this in the last episode, but one of the most misleading aspects of this final report is a suggestion by Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer that they're serious about sitting down and talking about these issues in a productive, open-minded way and to look at how they can engage Congress to help educate and motivate them. The exact opposite is the case. The NCAA and Power Five have done everything in their power to keep Congress as ignorant as possible. They want Congress to buy into the fairy tale myths of amateurism, the collegiate model, and the student athlete, and they want to get federal protections and immunities, extraordinary federal protections and immunities that would end the athletes' rights movement. That is their goal. That is their motivation. And they're going to stop at nothing to get it. And as I wind this episode down, I want to talk about something I alluded to at the very beginning of the episode. And that is, who pays for all of these national office expenses? And in this context, who paid for all of the expenses of this transformation committee? A 21-member committee that worked over the course of a year and had some in-person meetings. And the committee itself obviously had expenses. And there I'm just talking about the committee members themselves. But you have to remember that from the very beginning of this committee's work, they got one of the most powerful and expensive public relations firms involved, Bully Pulpit Interactive Inc., to control the message and to spin the message. And then almost immediately after that, they got the lawyers involved to develop the framework through which all discussions on the student-athlete benefits and support would run and would be viewed and analyzed. And those lawyers 
We're there to protect the institutional interests, the NCAA, the Power Five, and the work of this transformation committee. They were not there to look at ways to actually provide additional benefits for these athletes. And then, of course, through this uh, subcommittee that was formed in August, the Subcommittee on Congressional Action, you had the lobbyists getting involved in the work of this transformation committee. These decision makers aren't going to do a thing on meaningful athlete benefits until they get the authority from Congress to do nothing without any repercussions or any accountability. And that comes through in the very cryptic way that this final report and that Greg Sankey talked about the role of this new subcommittee on congressional action and who was paying bully pulpits fees and the lawyers fees and the lobbyist fees, division one men's basketball players. Those expenses are booked as NCAA expenses and are paid exclusively from the talents and labors of a labor pool comprised overwhelmingly of African-American athletes. Not a penny of the SEC's and Greg Sankey's precious football money went to pay any of these expenses. I guess I just need to close this thing out. There are so many things in this report that I wanted to talk about. I may fold some of those things into other episodes, and I may just do a quick uh, standalone episode here shortly on what recommendations came out of the infractions process committee that Greg Sankey is a member of. It's a small seven-person committee. I, I told you about that in the last episode. It really was the conduit for all of the recommendations of the Transformation Committee on Infractions and Enforcement, and Greg Sankey was making recommendations to himself, but I haven't talked in specificity about what those recommendations were, and they were very specific, and they make a mockery of athletes' rights and American due process. Those recommendations from the Infraction Process Committee are a window into the truth of how these NCAA Power Five decision makers see the world and the rights of athletes. So I'll, I'll keep you in suspense on that. So with that, I'm going to close this out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.